There's nothing to worry about, the two men thought as they approached a fire on a country lane. It was 1.50am on the 6th of November 1930 and the men were walking home from a bonfire night dance in Northampton, England. Bonfire night, which is sometimes referred to as Guy Fawkes night or fireworks night, takes place every year on the 5th of November in the United Kingdom. It's a commemoration that has taken place since 1605 and celebrates the fact that Guy Fawkes and other members of the gunpowder plot failed to blow up Parliament and assassinate King James I. This was the reason why the men didn't panic as they made their way towards their homes in the village of Hardingstone. Someone must have lit a bonfire in celebration of Guy Fawkes' night. As the men walked down Hardingstone Lane, a man approached them in the opposite direction. The man was well dressed and he was carrying a briefcase. He spoke to the two friends, saying that it looked like someone was having a bonfire. After he made this remark, the man continued walking in the direction of the main Northampton to London road. The friends continued making their way home, but they soon discovered that the fire they saw burning against the night sky had nothing to do with bonfire night. On the side of the road was a car, a Morris Minor to be precise. It had been set ablaze, with the flames reaching up to 12 feet in height. As quickly as they could, the friends alerted Hardingstone village policeman Bert Copping and the parish constable. Together, the group of four extinguished the fire with water collected from a nearby pond. Once the fire had been extinguished, PC Copping peered into the car. A rugby ball was on the front seat, or so Copping thought. When he looked again, Copping realised he was looking at a head. Lying across the front seat was a body, with the head positioned on the driver's seat. The right arm had been burnt off at the elbow. When word came that the man in the car had been murdered, the case made it into the national newspapers. The victim was around the age of 30 and, due to the condition of his lungs, he likely worked in a dusty environment. Spectroscopic tests were used to analyse the victim's blood and this, coupled with a microscopic examination of his air passages, showed the man was alive but unconscious when the fire began. A wooden mallet found near the car had three human hairs attached to it. A joint on the feeding pipe between the petrol tank and the carburettor of the car had been loosened before the fire began. Petrol was able to flow into and beneath the car. The man died within 30 seconds of the fire starting. Investigators were certain that they were dealing with arson and murder. The Morris Miners' rear number plate was mostly undamaged. The car belonged to a man called Alfred Roos. Armed with this information, along with a few scraps of clothes and a wallet that contained 30 shillings, the police visited Alfred's home on Buxted Road in London. There they spoke to his wife, Lily, and she was asked to help in the identification of the victim, but due to the condition of the body, she wasn't allowed to see the man. 
Lily said that Alfred left home at 8.30pm on the 5th of November to attend a business meeting in Leicester. Lily thought that Alfred had come home at a time she mistook to be 2am the next morning. Lily confirmed that the scraps of clothing looked like garments her husband wore, although she couldn't be certain. The wallet, however, did belong to Alfred. Alfred Roos was born on the 6th of April 1894 on Milkwood Road, Herne Hill, London. His father, Walter, was English and worked as a hosier. His mother was from Ireland and sources say she was an actress. Alfred's mother left the family in 1900. From then on, Walter's sister helped to raise the children. Alfred belonged to the Church of England and left school at the age of 14. His first job saw him working for an estate agent as an office assistant. After this, he spent five years at a textile manufacturing company. Alfred was a man of many talents. He was a trained carpenter, played the violin, piano and mandolin and was able to sing. In 1909, he met Lily Mae Watkins at a local dance and the pair began dating. They married on the 29th of September 1914. Just four days before World War I broke out, Alfred enlisted in the British Army and he was assigned to the 24th Queen's Regiment as a private. Alfred was sent to France in March 1915. He served with distinction in the army, but was able to find the time to father an illegitimate child. Alfred was involved in the Battle of Festubert, and in a bayonet attack he came face to face with a German soldier, lunged at him and missed. The memory of this caused recurring nightmares. On the last day of that particular battle, a high explosive shell exploded close to Alfred's head. He injured his head, knee and thigh. Alfred was knocked unconscious and he didn't wake up until his hospital train passed through Bedford, England, as it made its way to a UK Ministry of Defence hospital unit. Alfred spent most of the next year in hospital and had several operations, including some on his left temporal region to remove shrapnel. He now had difficulty walking, and it was found that his ability to walk had been reduced by 75%. He was formally discharged from the army in February 1916, and was awarded a military pension worth 20 shillings a week. After his doctor reported that Alfred's memory had been seriously affected, his military pension was increased to 25 shillings per week. By early 1917, Alfred had made some progress in recovering and his doctor was hopeful that his injury could be overcome. By July 1919, his doctor noted that Alfred wouldn't allow his knee to be flexed by more than 30%, but he determined that his patient no longer had a long-term disability from his head injury. The doctor was unable to find a physical reason for Alfred's limitation of his knee movement and felt it was linked to his neurosis. In August 1920, a final examination revealed his injury had completely healed and the limitations of his knee movement had decreased. 
His military pension was stopped and Alfred was given a final lump payment of £41 5 shillings in settlement of all his injury claims. Alfred began to enjoy life again. He found employment that involved physical work and he developed mechanical skills as many of these jobs involved the use of vehicles. He began playing tennis and in the late 1920s Alfred began working as a commercial traveller for a Leicester-based firm which mainly sold braces and garters. This job led to Alfred travelling across the south coast and the Midlands. Things were going well. Alfred and Lily were able to take out a mortgage on a house on Buxted Road where they lived with their son and in 1930 Alfred bought a 1928 Morris Minor. When the police spoke to Lily in November 1930 it appeared that the victim found in the burning car was Alfred. Or was he? Alfred wasn't the family man he seemed to be on the surface. Alfred didn't just have one secret, he had many and they came in the form of various women. After being discharged from the army, Alfred began a series of affairs with married and single women. He was a charismatic fellow and many of the women he saw came from poorer backgrounds. He charmed them with stories of how he was a rich entrepreneur from London and gave them promises of marriage. Alfred met many of these women through his work. He got a teenager from Edinburgh pregnant. Alfred met many of these women through his work. He got a teenager from Edinburgh pregnant and left her on her own to give birth in a home for unwed mothers. In 1925, he met a domestic servant called Nellie Tucker. In 1928, Nellie gave birth to a girl. When she found out she was pregnant again in the summer of 1930, Nellie was expecting Alfred to marry her. Then there was Phyllis Jenkins, a woman from Wales who was carrying Alfred's child. Phyllis was also expecting to marry Alfred. When the affairs and child support claims began to weigh down on Alfred, he decided it was time to start over. Alfred decided to fake his own death. He wanted to ensure the financial well-being of Lily and their son, so he took out a life insurance policy worth £1,000. Lily was named the benefactor and the policy would be paid in the event of the accidental death of the owner-driver of Alfred's vehicle. Alfred began thinking about committing a murder in which he could fake his own death when he read about the murder of Agnes Kesson, a Scottish barmaid who was found dead in a rural lane near the market town of Epsom in June 1930. When his mistress, Nellie Tucker, gave birth to a second child, a girl, on the 29th of October 1930, Alfred decided to act on his plan. Alfred spent the 2nd or the 3rd of November looking for a man he knew was physically similar to himself. He soon tracked him down. The man reportedly told Alfred that he had no one who cared if he was alive or dead. Alfred concocted a story about being able to help the man find work in the Midlands through his own job as a commercial traveller. 
His victim agreed to travel with Alfred to Leicester on the 5th of November, and to minimise any resistance from the man, Alfred gave his victim a bottle of whisky to drink during the drive. When Alfred eventually confessed, he said he'd chosen the 5th of November as the date to carry out the murder, as a fire wouldn't be noticed as much. Alfred believed he'd gotten away with murder after knocking his victim unconscious and setting fire to his Morris Minor. Alfred went home to London and arrived home at 6.20am, not 2am as his wife had thought. He spent half an hour at home before travelling by train to Glamorganshire, Wales, to meet one of his mistresses, Phyllis Jenkins. Alfred thought that his new life was just beginning, but it was Phyllis who soon led the police to Alfred. Phyllis was curious as to why Alfred hadn't driven to Wales in his car. He replied that it had been stolen in Northamptonshire the previous day and that the police and his insurance company had been informed. But Phyllis couldn't shake the feeling that something wasn't right. The next day, she showed Alfred a newspaper that had printed a photo of his burned-out car. The article accompanying the image wondered if the victim found in the car was the vehicle's owner. Had the man been killed? the newspaper asked. Alfred denied the car belonged to him. Alfred decided it was best to leave Phyllis. He told her that he was going to travel by coach to Hammersmith Broadway, West London, and at 10am he boarded a coach in Cardiff. Phyllis, however, had grown even more suspicious by now, and she contacted the police. She informed them that Alfred had been with her, and where he was travelling to. That evening, Alfred was arrested at the Hammersmith Coach Terminal by Detective Sergeant Skelly of the Metropolitan Police Service. Officers from the Northamptonshire Police made their way to Hammersmith. By now, the two friends who had discovered the burning car had spoken to the police about the person they'd seen walking away from the scene. While waiting for the Northamptonshire Police to arrive, Alfred claimed that the man in the car was a hitchhiker he'd met near St Albans, who had accidentally set his vehicle alight when Alfred left his car to relieve himself. Alfred also said that he was on his way to Scotland Yard to confess to his crime when he was arrested. Eventually, Alfred was taken to a police station in Northamptonshire, where he gave a slightly different story. Alfred said he found his victim hitchhiking along the Great North Road to the Midlands and decided to give the man a lift. Alfred got lost, adding that this was how he had ended up on Hardingstone Lane. On that country lane, he stopped the car so he could relieve himself and asked his victim, whom he'd given a cigar, to fill the car's petrol tank from a can in the boot. The next thing Alfred knew, the Morris Minor was ablaze and the hitchhiker was trapped inside. Alfred said he tried to open the car door, but couldn't because of the intense flames. This, said Alfred, was when he panicked and fled. He stuck to this story even when confronted with forensic evidence. Before the month of November ended, Alfred was charged with murder. Alfred's trial began at the Northampton Winter Assizes on the 26th of January 1931. 
Judge George John Talbot presided. When asked to confirm his age, Alfred said, I have always understood that I was 36, but I have no proof of that. Alfred pled not guilty, keeping up his story that the man's death had been an accident. Alfred testified in his own defence, with any contradictions he made pointed out would result in the loosening of the feeding pipe joint. In the eyes of the defence, this meant that the victim may have accidentally set the Morris Minor on fire. The prosecution, however, dismissed this theory. They argued that Alfred, weighed down by several mistresses and the child support claims they made against him, decided to fake his own death as he wanted to start over. Three of his mistresses testified for the prosecution. At least two experts testified on behalf of the prosecution that the feeding pipe joint had been deliberately loosened. When the prosecution gave the carburettor to Alfred, he became nervous. The men who had conducted the autopsy also testified for the prosecution. Sir Bernard Spilsbury and Dr Eric Shaw stated that the victim had been alive and unconscious when the blaze started. They argued that the mallet found near the car had been used by Alfred to hit his victim on the head. Spilsbury's testimony didn't end there. Spilsbury said that a clothing fragment found on the victim came from a section of the fork on the trousers the victim had been wearing and that the scraps of clothing had been doused in petrol. For the prosecution, this testimony supported their argument that Alfred had soaked his victim and his car in petrol before he started the fire. For the defence, this meant that the victim had spilled petrol on himself by accident. After six days, the jury retired to consider their verdict. The deliberations lasted 25 minutes. Alfred Roos was found unanimously guilty of murder. Alfred appealed the conviction, saying that a moral character evidence used in the trial may have influenced the jury. Saying that a moral character evidence used in the trial may have influenced the jury. His appeal was rejected. His fate had been sealed. Alfred would be paying a visit to the gallows. In the days running up to his visit to the gallows. In the days running up to his execution, his wife Lily and two of his mistresses visited Alfred. On the 10th of March 1931, Alfred was hanged at Bedford Jail. Not long after his execution, the Daily Sketch published a letter written by Alfred. In the letter, Alfred admitted his guilt. He said he drove his victim to the Midlands, encouraging him to drink the whisky Alfred purchased for him. Once they reached Hardingstone Lane, he strangled his victim to the point of unconsciousness. After that, he loosened the feeding pipe, poured petrol on his victim and his car. He put the petrol tank in the back of the vehicle and started the fire with a match. Alfred had intended to walk to Northampton and travel to Scotland, where he would start a new life. But when he encountered the two friends walking home from a bonfire night dance, he realised that people would know he wasn't the victim in the car. 
He went home, pretending his car had been stolen, and then went to visit Phyllis Jenkins in Wales. As we already know, he was arrested soon after. Who was Alfred's victim? No one knows. Alfred said he never asked his victim for his name, as he didn't have a reason to. Alfred did, however, give a description of his victim. The man was about 40 years old, and between 5 foot 6 inches and 5 foot 8 inches tall. He had a slight Irish accent, and had a boxing or sporting tattoo on his right arm. Alfred said that on the day he carried out the murder, his victim wore a light-coloured overcoat, police boots that the man said had been given to him by the London police, and he carried a sports diary. As of 2017, 12 families whose loved ones vanished around 1930 have been ruled out as relatives of the victim, thanks to DNA testing on tissue samples taken from the victim. A grave at St Edmund's Church in Hardingstone is the resting place of the unidentified man. He was buried there after residents of the village covered the cost of his funeral. A metal box containing newspaper accounts of Alfred Roos's trial was placed in the grave with him. Hope remains that people with connections to London and Leicester will continue to come forward for DNA testing, so that the victim's memorial marker will no longer have to read, In Memory of an Unknown Man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nightmares Before Bedtime. You can support the show in a number of ways. You can leave a review over on Apple Podcasts or support the show on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash nightmares before bedtime. You can follow the nightmares over on Twitter at nightmaresbb. I'll speak to you all again soon and in the meantime... Don't have nightmares.